This is the word of God. Jonah 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you, dwell, do, you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we've come to the end of Jonah. It's been 11 weeks and we're at the end. This is our last sermon. We'll make a transition next week into a new series as we get closer to Easter and to the cross. And so, as we get to our final sermon, um, object lessons. Jonah gets an object lesson this morning with a plant, hence the new plant I put up here, just to put that on your mind. Um, It's a little different than Jonah's plant, probably, but we'll get to that point later. Um, But object lessons, they can be helpful in learning things. And so I have a few that came to mind this morning for me that I'd read about recently. And so... um, Kevin's going to put a couple of things on the screen for us. So go to the, yeah, it's a blank. There we go. What do you see when you look at that? Thank you. Someone said, and I would would assume most of you, see the black dot on the left side. Even if you you don't have 20-20 vision, you'll probably see the black dot. And that is common, although it's a little ironic because isn't, 99% of that a white sheet. So there was a guy years ago who used this as an object lesson to a group of businessmen, and he asked the same question. He said, what do you see? And he said, they all answered, a blot. And he says, the test is unfair. It invites the wrong answer. He said, nevertheless, there's an ingratitude that's built into our human nature by which we notice the black disfigurement and forget the widespread mercy that is displayed by the white. So he uses this object lesson as a way to say, we need to deliberately call to mind the joys of our journey. Perhaps we should write down the blessings of one day. We might begin and we could never end. There are not enough pens or paper in all the world to to communicate all the gratitude we should have for the vast amount of white that's in our life, even though there is a little bit of black there as well. So that's one object lesson. Kevin, go to the next slide. 
All right. I'm, a, I'm assuming here you're seeing a mess of uh, entanglement because that's what it is. It's a mess of entanglement. But this is actually a, an object lesson used by a woman named Corey Tenboom, who was a huge part of the story of in World War II. She lived in the Netherlands and she took in many Jewish people into her home to shield them from the Nazis. And um, she, you can go visit her house today in the Netherlands and she has this on her wall. And this is an embroidery and this is the back side of it. So Kevin, go to the next page and you'll see the front side of it which is a crown, a beautiful crown embroidery. And she uses this object lesson to say, does God always grant us what we ask in our prayers? Not always. Sometimes he says no, but that's because God knows what we do not know. She says the wrong side of the piece of embroidery is chaos, but the beautiful picture on the other side, the right side, reveals an extravagantly embroidered crown, symbolizing our crown of eternal life. The crown was beautifully stitched with threads of many colors, but also gold, silver, and pearls. In our lives, we often see the wrong side, but God sees his side all the time. One day we shall see the embroidery from his side and thank him for every answered and unanswered prayer. Although the threads of my life have often seemed knotted, I know by faith that the other side of the embroidery, there is a crown. It's a great object lesson. And Jonah gets his own object lesson in the story of Jonah with the plant this morning. And so as we enter into this this morning, I've titled this sermon, uh, The Most Important Thing About Us, because God is really trying to get at that in Jonah. What is most important, Jonah? What is the most important thing about you, about your life, about God's purposes in your life? What is the most important thing, Jonah? And so to do that, he gives him this plant. So just background, if you haven't been here the last few weeks or if you've just forgotten where we are in the story, remember Jonah's the prodigal prophet who was told to go to Nineveh. Jonah said no, so he goes the other direction, gets on a ship, goes the other direction, gets a storm in the middle of the ocean, the ship crashes, Jonah gets swallowed up by a great fish. Most of you know that part of Jonah. Jonah gets spit up by the fish. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. This time Jonah says, yes, I'll go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh this time, takes him a while. He gets there, preaches the sermon, seven words. Remember, that's all he was able to give. Seven word sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh repent. They believe God. They turn. And Jonah is shocked. More than shocked, he's mad. He gets frustrated that God's mercy oversteps his judgment so quickly in his eyes that Jonah gets upset. And so Jonah now finds himself up on a hillside outside of the city of Nineveh, overlooking the city because he's still kind of thinking that God might judge the city and blow it up. He's watching to see what God is going to do during these 40 days. And so Jonah gets up on the hillside, And this is where the plant comes in. So I'm going to give you just a couple of points this morning, um, but I'm going to make it a little bit more about you than you may be comfortable with. Because again, it's not just about Jonah. It's about you also. So what do you think about God? What do you expect of God? 
What's your default mode of assuming God will do something this way? What do you think about God? There's a quote by a man named A.W. Tozer, which, Kevin, I also have this. You can put up on the screen so folks can see this. It's a quote that says this. A.W. Tozer is a theologian from 80 years ago. And he says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so that's where that question comes from. What do you think about God? Because when you identify the answer to that question, it actually can show you what is actually most important about you. And it will reveal your heart, your connected or disconnectedness to who God is and who he really is. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. At the end of that quote, which is in the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So this, this applies to individuals and it also applies to churches. So what do we as a church think about God? Because that will reveal the most important thing about our church too. Is God a God of judgment primarily? Who's out to send people to hell as quickly as he can unless they do something? Or is God always looking to dispense his mercy and his grace? Is he always on the pursuit of us? Or is God too gracious and doesn't have any judgment in him and therefore it doesn't matter how you live your life? These are some of the toughest questions theologians have wrestled with and biblical scholars have wrestled with. Justice and mercy. I hope you felt that tension throughout the book of Jonah. Is God going to be true to his justice? Is he going to be true to his mercy? Mike got into that a little bit last week. Or can he be both all at once? Jonah, like I said, assumed that God was going to destroy Nineveh. In verse 5, it said, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a little shelter for himself, and sat under it in the shade till he would see what what would become of the city. Again, he still kind of thought that God might still turn to judgment. He was putting himself at a safe distance, though. You recognize that? He's like, if God really is going to take this thing down, I'm going to sit on the outside of the city and watch it from a distance. But there was no doubt that this 40 days that Jonah had spent, um, only a couple of them were actually spent preaching, and most of it was spent sitting aside outside the city, looking to see what God would do to them. Notice here, Jonah isn't necessarily concerned about what God is going to do to him. He's thinking mostly, what is God going to do to those people? Those non-Jewish people, those Gentiles, those pagan worshipers. Would God really show his wrath and destroy it? Or would he really relent and be merciful? Jonah seems to have painted his picture of God in his mind already. He seems to have at least two things that are going through his mind. One is that God seemed to be only for Israel exclusively. And secondly, that God was not able to be moved or to be dynamic or to change his, his mind. That nothing, nothing should be able to change God. Not even the repentance of a pagan people. God is God. Jonah had become rigid in his understanding of, of the the dynamic nature of who God is. 
And I think Jonah definitely believed in God. I mean, I think he, he understood who God is. He knows the Old Testament. He, he quoted Exodus last week of God is the God of mercy and compassion, slow to anger, abounding in love. He, I think he has a genuine relationship with God. But he also had found himself stuck in this untrue understanding of the dynamic aspect of who God is. So what's the most important thing about Jonah based off of his view of God? I don't know. I'm not Jonah. Only Jonah, I think, really knows fully what his view of God was. It's hard to say. But I do think the one thing that we can kind of assume from what we know about Jonah is that he had put God into a box. God was in a nice, orderly box And for God to break out of that box was really dangerous to Jonah. It was threatening to Jonah. It was threatening to his theology, threatening to how he understood life as a whole. And I wonder if some of us can can relate to that as well. So watch now how God gently and uniquely confronts Jonah and meets him where he needs to be met, exactly how Jonah needs to be met. God is so gracious and gentle and personal with how he confronts us when we put him into a box. Enter the plant. Jonah builds a little shelter for himself. Seemingly, it doesn't have a roof. That's kind of implied here. He built like a four-walled structure, maybe. A booth is what it's called. Probably with just sticks and whatever he could find up on the hillside. He's probably sleeping there. It's like a tent but it doesn't seem to have any shade for the scorching hot sun that was known in that part of the world. And so enter the plant that begins to grow up over Jonah and provide shade for him. God uses this as an object lesson to reveal Jonah's idols and to shake up Jonah's assumption about God and to show Jonah the truth about who he really is. And so as we turn from the question of what do you think about God, Now we're turning to the other side of the coin, which is, what does God think about you? So I'm going to give you another theologian. I'm going to put two theologians into the boxing ring with each other here. A.W. Tozer on one side. The other one is C.S. Lewis. And so there's a quote, Kevin, you can put up on the screen here of C.S. Lewis, who he says this. How God thinks of us is not only more important but infinitely more important than the other way around. What God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. He goes on to say, to please God or to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness is to be loved by God and not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. C.S. Lewis makes the argument that what God thinks of us actually is what really does the shaping in our life. That's what changes us. And when you see what God thinks of you, that's when your life changes. So the question for Jonah is, is he going to see what God really thinks of him? So enter the plant. God loves you. It's the core of the Christian faith. 
But understanding what that word love really entails is so important. What is love? If you think about 1 Corinthians 13, which you'll hear at most every wedding ceremony you'll go to, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, love is patient. Love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant, is not rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Put that context into God as he's dealing with Jonah here. Jonah, is, Jonah needs some correcting. God is entering into his story to correct his misunderstanding of who God is. But look how God treats Jonah with patience, with kindness, how he shows that he's not envying, he's not boasting, he's not arrogant, he's not rude. And he's asking Jonah to learn those things as well. Because I think if you put 1 Corinthians 13 love up against Jonah's interaction with the Ninevites, you see some inconsistencies. Arrogance, rudeness, boasting, envy, not irritable or resentful, rejoicing at wrongdoing, rejoicing with the truth. So when Jonah gets exceedingly glad when the plant shows up in verse 6, that's revealing of, of what Jonah's heart had arrived at. But it's interesting to think of that in the same way, Uh, as Jonah was exceedingly glad when the plant arrived, so too God said it was very good when he created humans. When he created you, God was exceedingly glad in the same way that Jonah was exceedingly glad when the plant came. Or think about this way. When Jonah pitied, or that word really means has concern or has compassion, when Jonah pitied the plant when it began to die, when it withered, so too God pitied the people of Nineveh when they began to wither all those years before. When they had turned their back on true life, God had pity on them. So God here actually is showing Jonah here. He's like, I understand how you feel. I know how you feel, but they're being applied in different ways. In the same way that Jonah is acting towards a plant, God says, that's great, Jonah. I feel that way about human people, about image bearers of God, people that I brought into the universe with a purpose intentionally. He said, I didn't have to create humans, but I did because I love them. And I want them to be part of the life that I'm inviting them into, a life of love and mercy and joy, one that we will experience in heaven one day forever. God says, the same way you feel about that plant, when it came up and you were glad and when it went down, you were sad, That's the same emotions that God feels when he created humans and when they fall. So what do you do? One major difference here in this thinking is that Jonah didn't do anything to create the plant. The plant just came up out of divine mercy. And it just lasted one day. Came up one day, went down in one day. A short experience of love. It's like that fleeting boyfriend or girlfriend you had when you were 15 years old. Came in a day and went out in a day. Nothing of your own doing. Jonah had nothing to do with this. But when God created humanity, that was his initiative. That was his personal involvement in the world. God initiated creating humanity and he 
He makes us grow. He brings us into his life. He brings about flourishing in us. And he's known us from the beginning. It's not just a one day, then you're gone. He's known us from the very beginning. And he'll know us at the very end. And he's doing everything he can to not make you ultimately wither. God's love for humanity then is much deeper and more convincing than God's, than Jonah's love for the plant. So focus again just a minute on who it is that God is pitying. Because this is, I think, where Jonah gets mad about. Jonah's mad that the people that God is, is pitying or having concern over is the Ninevites. Which I'm not sure I've pressed on this point enough in the last 11 weeks. But in fairness, the people of Nineveh were extremely cruel people. Let me just read you an, ex, an excerpt from uh, Tim Keller's book on the, on the prophet Jonah. He describes how Nineveh was understood during that time in, ancient, in the ancient world. He says, quote, Assyrian kings, so Nineveh is, a, is the city in the nation of Assyria. So Assyrian kings, like the ones in Nineveh, are often recorded the, the results of their military victories, gloating of whole plains littered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor Shalmaneser III is well known for torturing, dismembering, decapitating enemies in a grisly detail on a large stone relief panels. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. They were known for terror-mongering. After capturing enemies, Assyrians would do, I'm going to skip some of the gory details here. Okay, I'm just going to stop there. They do bad things. They're evil people who did atrocious things to other humans. And so again, in fairness to Jonah, God being so gracious and merciful to that people is a little hard for Jonah to swallow. And yet it's that nation that God makes the object of his missionary outreach. He will not let them wither to death. He refuses He's going to continue pouring water. He's going to continue, continue to nurture the plant that is Nineveh because he does not want them to die. That's how big and wide God's mercy and love is. And Jonah just can't see it. Jonah says, I just, why them? Why me to them? And so what does God think about you? You know, it's impossible to look at the story of Jonah and not go to Jesus because one, Jesus brings up the story of Jonah in his own life, but also the imagery is just profound. So think about how God views you and then let's apply it to the person of Jesus for a moment. Let me ask you a few questions. They're rhetorical. The answer is Jesus. I'll just give you the answers. Who else grieved while sitting up on a hillside overlooking a great city. Jesus, while he weeped over Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Who else had scandalous compassion while looking over a desperate people who didn't know their left hand from their right hand? Jesus, in Mark 6, 34, it said he had compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd don't know what way to go. They don't know their left from their right. Who else would be, quote, angry enough to die 
when he saw something he loved withering away. Jesus on the cross. Jesus was so angry about the sin of the world that he said, enough, I'm angry enough to die, but I'm gonna die for you in your place so that you could be free. There is no clearer way to know how God thinks or feels about you than by looking at the person of Jesus. His arms are wide open, inviting you into fullness of life always. Another uh, author, Frederick Beekner, says this. I just love this image for you. The grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen, but don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you that I created the universe. I love you. And there's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift also. And so as we get to the end of Jonah, you just feel the story inviting you to a response. The last word in the whole book is cattle. It feels like an abrupt ending. It is an abrupt ending. There's no tie up the story here with a, new, a neat bow. The, the package is still unwrapped. And God is basically offering you to step into the story and to receive it as you want. And I think as we finish here, the last point to make is, how does, how does Jonah really respond? What's the end of this story? Did Jonah really change? Did he really come to see how much God loves him and have that change his outlook on life and leave him never the same? The text doesn't tell us. Jonah does not give a wrap-up conclusion. But as one commentator helped me with this week, the fact that the story of Jonah is recorded in so much detail, with so much personal experience, going to places that really no one else could go, like the belly of a fish, or up on a hillside all by yourself, or on a boat, no one else was with Jonah in those moments except Jonah, which means that the author of this book has to be Jonah himself. And with the ending of the book being this way, it's almost like Jonah saying, I've changed because I see it. Now will you change and do you see it? And so the takeaways from Jonah for us is this book is a challenge for us to lay down our idols, the things that we put above God, whether it be as silly as a plant that covers your, your shelter or a career that covers all your time. The message of Jonah is a call to love people no matter how evil or different or other they are, how disconnected you feel from them. And the message of Jonah is an invitation to growth, to not be content in staying as you are, even if you already are a Christian, even if you already know the love of God, but to not put God in that box, but to allow the box to be burst open 
and to grow with him. The last image I'll give you, the last object lesson, I guess you could say, is there's a cathedral in downtown London called St. Paul's Cathedral. Magisterial cathedral, huge. I mean, just kind of 100 foot tall ceilings and amazing acoustics. And they often have a beautiful choir that sings there in worship. And they say that when the choir is singing, because of the acoustics of the space, that by the time the last person closes their lips on the last song, the music lingers in the air for seven more seconds because of the acoustics. And so that's us with Jonah. Let this linger in your life for a little bit of time and let God invite you into how he has you to respond. How did Jonah change? How will you change? My prayer is that the relentless pursuit of the God of grace and mercy running towards you in goodness will resonate long and deep into your life. The reality that God loves you more and more than you'll ever really fully comprehend. So let me close us in prayer and then we're gonna sing about that everlasting love of God. So Father, we, we pray at the end of this sermon series that you will do something with it. I don't know what, but we open our arms to you, open our hearts to you and say, God, help us to see what we need to see. Help us to grow as we need to grow. Change us. Get us out of the box. We look to you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us more than we ever deserved. We want to give you our love as a response. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.